Hey there, welcome to Broadcast to Post. I'm Jeff Sengpil, CTO at Keycode Media. This is the show where we interview leaders and experts in the AV, broadcast, and post-production spaces. We're giving you the inside tips to grow your media workflows and business today. Oh, what up, everyone? My name is Stephen McGee. Um, I'm a filmmaker. Uh, everything underneath that, from producer, director, to shooter, editor. What's up, Brian? What up, though? Um, and thank you for having me here. Uh, I've been in Detroit for 18 years. We're going to go through that a little bit. Um, but I think my journey really started kind of how I started uh, here um, was winning $140,000 worth of gear about four years ago, five years ago at NAB. Um, and that moment of, of preparing for that competition, it was mind blowing, right? That's like, it's a lot of gear. And right before that, I was shooting on a 5D, you know, that kind of hustle, right? The day in, day out with just a camera and a lens, but a goal to tell stories from the inside of wherever you can get to in humanity. And so this is a picture that my friend David Guttenfelder shot. And um, I think, you know, I kind of heard a little bit about your story. So I want this to be kind of informal, but also I'll, I'll go through things. So if anybody has questions through it at all, you know, we got an hour or 45 minutes, 45 minutes, however long we like. Um, so uh, half of my life is photographing and documenting Detroit, a city that I moved to in 2005 during a time when people, um, when there was a, a general stigma of the city that was very misunderstood um, on the outside, but led the dominant narrative. And so moving from California, I uh, just felt like the, mo the more people were like, why are you moving to Detroit? The more I wanted to get into it. The other half is going around the world like this and filming and photographing for nonprofit groups, corporations, and clients, um, and that kind of stuff. When I approach B-roll, it's a huge part of my life. You know, the A-roll of the audio is important, but the B-roll really stems from a photography background. And in that photography background, I feel like I want to kind of dive into that. Is this helping so far? Like we getting into documentary storytelling, it's really a huge thing. It, it really has to do a lot with who you are as a person, I think, and how you approach stories and how you approach the person in front of you. Um, you know, from that shot over win, uh, I want to show you one more piece um, that kind of shows a little bit of uh, the background. And I think this kind of helps you see how I move with the camera. But... I think the thing to notice is like each one of those shots is made from like this much space, right? Like you get into the scene and, you, and besides the helicopter shots, like it's a gimbal and a camera and a lens and the environment in front of you, right? Like it's not, it's not 45 person crews though I respect that, right? I respect that hustle, I respect that grind. It's important for a lot of diverse clientele and agency and I'm going through that right now. Uh, as I shoot Pure Michigan's next film on Detroit. But for the most part, it's just me. And it's like this, this internal desire to get to whatever humanity is in front of me, right? Like you're in generally, in, in general, I look out this window and I was like, wow, I've never seen this view of the city. You know, I'm like, but that's because I'm always thinking of, of, of a topic I care about, right? I'm like, can I shoot this? Can I, can I, uh, can I film this in a way later? And then what's on the horizon? Like which lenses do I need to get those buildings all the way over there someday? Um, and so, I, you know, to break that down, 
I'm standing kind of too much in front of the thing. But to break it down into making a film is, is uh, where I'm gonna go next. So it always, to me, starts with relationships. Um, relationships all the time. And so for one example, uh, I met this guy, David Guttenfelder, when I was teaching video and photos in Hanoi, in Northern Vietnam, in about 2006. We became friends. He was the first photographer into North Korea with Dennis Rodman. I called him one time when I was on a layover in Japan and he's like, I'm on a donkey in South Pakistan. And I was like, how do you have cell service? <laughs> like, you know, small things that I don't know about, you know, but you know, you ask questions because I, I don't know too much. Um, 17 years of just being his friend when he's overseas, being messaging him led to an opportunity to work with National Geographic. You know, like those types of little tiny things that are just allowing. And so he's like, follow me on uh, this, or come with me, I can't pay you, but like, let's shoot something. And that kind of spec work to me was worth, you know, just hanging out with him, let alone like making a film to work for a company that I cared about. Um, is this going the right direction? Is this good? Cool. Yeah, yeah, we like it. Um, I, we've seen a lot of films. Uh, I could show you this, it's like a two minute teaser. It didn't get picked up. It was too artistic. They didn't like National Geographic didn't know how to deal with it. They didn't have a pipeline, you know, to to put it into it. But you know, I've got three kids under ten. Like I can't just go around shooting things that don't go anywhere. But my wife fortunately believes me. She's in France right now competing. She's the first woman to do a backflip in competition for BMX. You know, she's a real champ, and she and we're not eighteen anymore. <laughs> we're forty one. And, you know, and so like she's pushing it every day. So I'm watching our three kids and doing this kind of stuff. So these types of stories, like it matters to me every single day. I got to get the shot. I can't come home with nothing. I have to care about the people in front of me. And and again, the photojournalism approach is, is really, there's zero pre-production in photojournalism. Like for the most part, you know, and, and in photography a lot of the time too. And in video journalism too. Sometimes you just have that, line and like I worked for the New York Times for a couple times and you would just get a line like show up to this location come back with a, a front cover photograph and some people's minds would just like blow up because they're like wait what am I supposed to shoot and that's a good part of the industry another part of the industry is this kind of like make things up as you go and follow the story that's like a huge concept to a lot of people that doesn't work in their brains. And I think it can. I think it really can. Because the story you care about is the one that matters to the world too. You sometimes are just, sometimes the, uh, the, I've just seen systems in place that don't allow the creatives to like push back a little bit and be like, I need to get into this more, right? I need to get there because if it's not, then it's just this like kind of washed down story of what it could be. You think about it, right? It's like, okay, you have camera, you have the first interview, right? The, uh, you know, this guy's like, it's prejudiced to think about an engine. You know, that conversation started around a campfire. Like, it wasn't like, well, tell me what you think about electric vehicles. I like grabbed the camera and I used the camera like next to his face like this. You know, it was like, this needs to be recorded because I don't want to hear it again. I want this to be the time I hear it. You know, and then the second guy is like, okay, I'm doing this student program. Well, that's my friend, Andy. You know, and I knew that that was happening because I understand my community. My community is like awesome. Detroit's incredible. The stories, the people, every part of it. So I'm like, if I have an opportunity to lift a friend up to National Geographic status, 
that I'm going to do that because he's a good story. The kids are going to benefit and all that kind of stuff. It ran huge in the magazine. And that's amazing, right? It's insane. And then you start building these pieces and these, these conversations start happening naturally. That guy who is like dinosaur goo. I'm like, that's, you can't teach that, right? That's like such a good, good comment about gasoline. So you start building those assets and you know, the cameras of course matter. Like my camera for the shot over the, is in the back of a truck and we're kind of just tooling around. Um, you know, this is what the setup looks like inside. You got a monitor, you have this on my lap, you know, and like, that's the guy that was talking about the engines and that's the photographer for National Geographic in the back. And we're kind of doing this like little move around and you just kind of start moving cameras. So again, but most of my shots that you see like everything, I don't know why this is a big deal, but like it doesn't take much, right? Like you get to an environment and if I was gonna shoot you as a crowd here, I'm already in position to have a leading line and a leading line. Like this is where I said, if I stood here, this wouldn't be my photograph. But like photographically, I'm looking at you guys from my frame. But for me, the way I would shoot you is just dead on. I have all of my lines, everything is perfect symmetry because great photos make great clips. If you can make a good photograph, like ge geometrically, uh, which we'll go into. Oh, here's the gear. So this was gear for this. Um, Freefly, uh, Komodo, Zeiss. And this is kind of how I cruise now. Fujinon, Komodo. And then I'm also using the H2S, uh, XH2S and the H2, X2, oh gosh. Um, which are just awesome cameras. And I'm actually using them more than my Komodo because the sensors are incredible. Like, I just, we can get into that later, but you can see, like, you could travel around the entire world with this, right? And work for the biggest clients. Like, this is just like me being like, this is behind the scenes. And this was for like a leading bank in the world, you know, and they're, they're wanting these stories. You know, like, I think I can get into my backstory a little bit, but this is us going up the Zion, you know, river. That's us, the crew of two, you know, and like this, the slow motion functions and that kind of stuff. But for me, it's always full send on B-roll. B-roll to me is always what I lay down. Everybody knows what B-roll is? Anybody know what it is? Cool. B-roll is the video that makes your stories worth watching. Um, and, you know, this is kind of goofy, but it was the only way to get the leverage and the stability that I needed for that shot in Poland. Um, gear list, I'll get into my framing again, but gear list, gimbal is 55% of my shots are on gimbal. Drones, about 15%. I got the new uh, Mavic 3. Tripods, 10% at this point, although I love a great tripod film. Um, handhelds, 10%, FPVs, 3%, sliders, like 5%. Um, so for me, the B-roll is always where to point the camera to. This clearly doesn't show that I know where to point the camera to, actually. It's quite the opposite message. But, you know, in Sunrise, it was supposed to be for the apps. You know, and I think I feel blessed to have grown up in the time where I had to shoot film stock. I had to shoot mini DV tape. I had, I had to get those hours in where like each shot mattered because you were paying for the post-production, you know? And so this was before the Sun app. So, you know, shooting in 2015 for uh, Dan Gilbert downtown, a thing called Anthem of Us or actually 2016. You know, I was looking for whatever, I was kind of, I didn't know my own process. I, I didn't trust my own um, intuition of what camera shots would work even though I was 12 years into filmmaking, actually probably about 16 years, but really 12 years into getting paid. Um, you know, now with this, it's like you get from B-roll of like trying to point everything to like, you know, just very specific, I need one shot and I'm gonna use 
you know, sometimes the craziest gear to get that shot. And even if it's just shoes that cost $30,000. Um, so my roots are always in photojournalism. I was raised uh, just, you know, kind of in California and Las Vegas. And my mom, uh, who turned 75 next week, um, wanted to be a photographer, but women during that time, she had to fight for dark room space. Like she didn't have the opportunities to even uh, do as much as as uh, as she had dreams of. And I felt that when she was giving me that camera for the first time, even though I was only photographing, uh, you know, train tracks that led nowhere or a rose, you know, I was like 18. I didn't really know what I wanted to photograph, but I instantly followed my brother around the world, going to Cambodia, visiting him at, um, where he was teaching English, going over to Italy, going over to Africa, and it turned into about 40 countries. That kind of like drive to see the world. And every time I would leave, no matter where I was living, you'd come in with fresh eyes again. I don't know, does that, you guys have traveled? Like, that's what it feels like, right? You like, you go over there, you're like, wow, a house on stilts. For the first time, I've never seen that. Then you come back, you're like, our houses aren't on stilts. But now I see it differently. And so photojournalism to me is always about capturing that peak moment. Nothing that you've seen so far is staged besides sometimes me with the camera. Um, but, you know, so in Ukraine, after covering some uh, work I was doing with um, human trafficking or anti-human trafficking campaigns, um, I saw this just moment of this, uh, these two people, and I knew this person was coming up here. And so I moved myself to the camera and I photographed that. I don't shoot, you know, it's just one shot, one shot. And so that's how I approach my B-roll, um, which is why I, I feel, you know, my stories... Um, resonate sometimes. Photojournalism often follows subjects to reveal truths in inscripted life. Again, this woman uh, named Juan from Vietnam, she had side effects of Agent Orange, and I was invited to follow her around the nation trying to raise awareness for that. During a time I had no money and they weren't paying me, but they were paying my daily food. And you know, when you're on that hunger game, uh, food matters and the story mattered. So this was her, she wanted to take a selfie over here and kind of like showing which part of the shot, you know, in photography really matters. Her taking a selfie with San Francisco in the background could have been the shot, but her in her daily life, trying to get over this banister rail, which I would had clear access to step over, to me was the big moment, you know? And I showed her this and she's like, thank you for showing how I move around. You know, to some people it might be feeling uncomfortable and following her around. Finding the moments in photography are kind of also the exact same way I edit my video. So just these moments, you know, on Capitol Hill, getting a prosthetic leg in San Francisco. So this guy who's making prosthetic legs and also prosthetic animals, which was just a massively crazy scene. Um, and then a portrait in San Francisco. And then just like a subtle quiet moment. Just keep doing that through the day and you got yourself a three minute film, right? Find those moments. When I shoot, the, am I going too fast? It's good, helpful, all right. Um, 325, all right. so. When I shoot the B-roll, like you've seen in those first three films, I always look through the edit. And in that edit, I pull the clips that I love into kind of like a buffet. You know, I'm like, these are all my selects. And then I put it into the story before I even put in the audio. I want the video to tell the story first. And then I want the audio to, sub, to, to almost like just be exactly what you need to hear, not a word more. And each frame absolutely matters. So I know the strength of the frames, the strengths of the clips. I put them together. I see if it flows and I kind of start moving that. Like, you know, so picture lock is always first. 
Um, I place quotes also kind of in those things. I'm like, here's a quote that generally is about electric vehicles. Here's a quote that's generally about electric vehicles again. Which one is stronger? Let's put it here, put it here, put it here. I hope in my shoots that my pictures are always telling the best story. And then the quotes are gonna be gripping you into kind of caring about why. Scene-based inspiration, unplanned events. To me, coming in as a photojournalist again, uh, the camera, you know, if the people are moving, I, sometimes what makes a good image is just like from here to like here, here to like here. It's like just moving the pole out of the background, moving, you know, something over there. I do the B-rolls, same thing. If you think you're gonna take a picture here and it's perfect, and then you take a picture over here and it's perfect, the space in between that shot is my B-roll shot. So I start here on a perfectly shit framed image does this make sense? And then I move it over here. I don't know if I'm focusing too much on this, but that B-roll kind of keep on stacking those clips and keeping it photographic is another way of saying that is like keeping the ge geometry in the frame like active. You know, I feel like that kind of starts setting apart the work that I appreciate on Instagram, on, you know, in movies, you know, people plan entire shot decks out just so they can keep up their own vibe. But each of you, or if you're shooters, or if you work with shooters, like, Everybody has something they're attracted to that makes them lift the camera. You know, and, and if you can encourage those people to keep pushing their limit of what they find beautiful or how they want to frame. Because again, you know, I never shoot anything looking down at a 45 degree angle. I'm either looking straight down or straight level. Everything, I mean, in the gimbal though, you can like do this type of move, right? Like where you kind of have like a three axis tilt. So all of that, theory into movements and things that are just happening naturally. You think you're totally out of control, but you soon to start to think of things of like, well, if this person's moving over there, I'm gonna move with them, you know? And it's kind of like the matrix where you're like, it just needs to move perfectly and then you get the shot. Um, you know, yesterday I was filming paddle boarders, three women. Often clients want scripted things and I don't do scripted. So this major client in Michigan is asking me to do a film and they don't really have too much creative input. They're just like, do what you do. So I've got to figure out how to do what I do in like the largest platform possible in the state and, or in my mind, and do it authentically to me and to them. And so I had three paddle boarders like going towards um, Coriander on the east side, which is an incredible, incredible place if you guys are here tomorrow or the next day. It's right on the water, it's uh, got canals, it's really beautiful, the food and the drinks are fantastic. And it was sunset, so it was like 7 p.m., they're walking, and as they're walking, I've kind of already understood like exactly where, I can't show you this stuff, but you'll see it in June. But you know, as they're walking, I'm like, I know this is gonna be a three shot, it's gonna take about three seconds to get through those three shots in a 90 second spot. So I'm approaching that whole scene, and I'm in and out of the scene in 10 minutes. I'm not there for three hours, I'm not there for like, 20 minutes, I'm there, 10 minutes, not wasted their time, I'm out. And it's because I know that, you know, because I've been able to put productions together in a way that I'm also editing them, which I'm now trusting other editors, which was a big deal for me. Uh, I know though, as producer and director role, I'm like, this is just a three shot, like boom, and you're done. So all around scene-based inspiration. This is kind of what it looks like sometimes. It's like, I'm looking for the shot. This is 2017 me, so I have kind of a little bit better, but 
not too much. So this guy's like painting this wall and I'm just kind of trying to work the scene, moving the camera around. He, you know, that's the, kind of that scene-based inspiration where he's putting that bucket down. And during this time, I'm shooting 140, 120 frames per second. So it's slow motion. So I know that I only need to go and there's a whole shot, you know, and I don't need to gimbal for that because I know that this scene is going to be like, put the cans down, put this and kind of, you know, this spray. So, you know, great. Um, this was, you know, that's that. Oh yeah. Then it goes on. Um, here's another environment. Uh, this is a top down drone shot of community cleanup, which we've all maybe filmed or not filmed, but, um, this community day, they're going to move this, uh, uh, mattress. But I mean, look at this scene. You have this like beautiful examples of peak Detroit auto manufacturing and an awesome man who uh, lives in this house. Um, and so these community volunteers are helping. So I want to make, I want to honor the man. I want to honor them. And so, you know, moving this uh, was a environment that I just wanted to be respectful of. So I, I don't ask them to do anything, but I'll, you know, I'm recording the entire time and I'll move the camera in for like that first shot. You can imagine like going in on them all with their hands on it. And then I'll come all the way back here to, um, uh, to get a wide as they move out. So it's still recording. I come here and I'm like, I want to see the mattress moving away from these awesome cars um, in slow motion. I did a lot of slow motion because I never really focused my lenses. I'm always like on the brink of total failure. Um, and I have no problem saying that because somehow it continues to be success. Um, and so environment directly impacts camera movement and shot sequences in real time. Questions, comments, concerns? Um, yeah, this is, uh, this is kind of the shots from, this is the shots ungraded from um, the Fujinon cameras, which is insane. Like, you know, this is that, it's a tiny camera that can move in like incredible ways in 120 frames per second at 4K. So like it's kind of become my number one film. And so this was for a group that's purchased land back for First Nations people. And so we kind of shot some BTS. We shot the some of the people that got the land back. But you can kind of see like this process of just here's a shot. It's always kind of moving forward, sideways, up, down, you know, graded, not graded, um, you know, and, and how we move. So uh, questions, keep you on going. Um, so a team of stacking clips. Uh, I was a single operator uh, for a long time. I, uh, in 2005, I worked for the Detroit Free Press. We brought, uh, I had just worked around the world, um, was almost killed in a crazy experience in Uganda, came back to California and I was like, dude, what's life about? You know, like really questioning kind of like purpose. And it wasn't anything, I was just in the wrong place. Like I'm not even judging anybody over there. It just kind of was crazy. And I came back to California and while everybody, all my friends were filming and photographing surfing, I was like living with homeless people trying to tell their story. And the next day Detroit called Detroit Free Press and they're like, do you want to move out to Detroit? And I was like, absolutely. Like, you know, and, and like I said, like everybody was like, don't do that. That's like not what you want to do as a filmmaker. And I'm like, no, this is what I want to do. I want to get to know the city that nobody really knows from the people that I knew. And so that started in 2005. We won two national Emmys back to back, which was in bonkers. Like Dan Rathers was giving me an award. And it kind of was like, okay, we're doing something right. And at that time, YouTube was just starting. 
And the newspaper decided to kind of take a YouTube approach, which I, you know, they just needed to sell it to ad dollars. And I felt more of a calling to the city. And, and it was a city that I wanted to get to know and get to know the insiders um, and get to know myself. I don't know. There's a, there's a draw here in the city that's beyond words. Like it, it has to be translated through visuals. A photographer in the back behind white and I were just talking the other day. We were in totally different circles in 2010. And I'm like, I want to know your circles from like those years because those, those stories from the inside Detroit perspective uh, haven't really hit, haven't hit the, the national narrative like the stories of what wasn't here. You know, like everything about Detroit from the outsider's perspective was like, it was up and in 67 it went down and now all of a sudden it's back up. And I'm like, that narrative is stuff that I've heard from a lot of different people from the background, but isn't what I've seen or experienced or heard from the insiders people who have lived here their whole lives. And so I say all that because, you know, for a couple of years, I think I have it around here somewhere. Um, no, I was gonna say, for a couple of years, I was working for journalism outlets, both trying to understand how to tell the story here, trying to understand who else was telling stories here, and also getting requests from the outside of like, show us the worst of the worst like from the top media outlets for years. I'm not disrespecting them. It was just kind of the vibe that they were going for. And, you know, those years of journalism and in the streets where I was making like nine grand a year and eating bread out of a dumpster got me to understand who I was as a filmmaker in the best way. It was like a hustle that was like, it was just, it was something I, I recognized at the time and something that I was, uh, you know, and I'm thankful for years later. From that moment, I got married, and then my wife became my producer. And that was like the first time going from a one-man crew to two-man, to two-people crew. And from that, then we started growing our business and getting bigger and bigger jobs. And now three is kind of my go-to. I know that was kind of an interesting arc to get to this image. But the arc, you know, it's really only been about four to five years of using, of having two to three people crew. How many crews are on yours? Two or three? Four? One? Yeah, all the above. So um, Bailey is my is a drone pilot, gimbal operator, all this kind of stuff. Brian was the producer that kind of took us around the world and director. Um, we have fun on a lot of our shoots. We don't need to get into that. But our interview setups uh, look like this when we're anywhere in the world. We have um, some type of high-end recording audio device, boom pole that fits into a, a small bag, uh, microphone. Um, here we're shooting on reds. Uh, in a studio environment, kind of like where we had more access to gear. So we had, you know, this boom pole, light panels. Um, that's Kevin Johnson out of Atlanta. He really runs a very good production uh, with lots of people and crushes it all the time like that. Um, this was me being like single operator with all the stuff. Um, it gets really kind of dirty sometimes <laughs> where you have like the single pole and all the things uh, hanging off of that. And I don't recommend that, but that's kind of where I led my life sometimes. Um, questions, comments, concerns? Doing good? Uh, all right, framing interviews. Um, for uh, our magazine, I was offered uh, an opportunity to tell a story of the city. So they gave me 18 pages um, to talk about kind of my experience here. And I immediately turned the lens on the people that I met along the way. And uh, Bryce Detroit is one of them, and he has an art sign um, that's called Hood Closed to Gentrifiers, which is a beautiful message just about entering people's communities 
that you think need something, but they have a whole ecosystem of things going in already. And immediately you might, some people might be torn, pushed back from this, but it's actually an invitation to get to know people. And so having those types of narratives in a magazine that goes across the state to me was a really important thing. And so um, this was not an interview, but this is how I frame now in interview standards. It's not the bright and tight of 2006, 2007, where you would, you know, frame like, you know, this, right? Like lower or right. Like it's really like I would have him talk in this loose format of framing in terms of loose in terms of, of you know, you know, you're just not on his face. But like if I could ask him in questions and you would just press play, like that's I want the I want the interviews to feel like a destination themselves. Um, and to me, that goes to the extremes. This is two gentlemen. Uh, Matt's dad ran the first Lincoln, or Matt's grandpa ran the first Lincoln um, car, and now he's turning it into a park uh, for art. So, you know, in, in me looking at how I do things, I'm approaching interviews like, I need to stick these guys up here, and that's where I'm going to do the audio interviews. Um, just because there's, you know, there's just ways. Um, this year for 313 Day, Shinola uh, asked me how to celebrate um, 313 Day, March 13th, our area code. Um, they did a profile on this archive that I have for online. And then we uh, selected this gentleman, Roe Spit, who designed some Jordan shoes amongst a million other things. And Shinola was like, we want you know a fast paced film. And I'm like, actually, let's just slow it down. Let's just have a portrait and have it be a minute and a half on Instagram. Like that's completely against like everything I've watched, you know, for the most part. And so over this, over that interview way of just like kind of talking, I didn't have a camera on him. I just had a microphone um, in front of him, like kind of like this. Uh, I just, we just started talking. I had no agenda. Like, I'm like, where's this going to go? You know, and that's kind of how it goes. Like sometimes it's like, oh, you Frisbee golf too? Cool. Like, where do you like to Frisbee golf? And then it'll be like, and then. You know, you're like, oh yeah, and that's the gold. And so we got to that gold. You know, it, it all, I wanna have like this, this option, uh, this option to, for both of us to find a, rev, a revelation in a conversation that means something to both of us. You know, and so in that, this is how Ro, um, you know, it was gonna only be 90 seconds, but we ended up having two cutaways just for people from the outside to see Detroit. But um, here we go. When I explained Detroit, people just, it's like it's this thing that you you have to wear on your back, and I'm I'm doing I'm representing where I'm from. The state doesn't move without Detroit. Detroit is the heart. When the heart is healthy, it makes it makes the state move, but it also makes you know it it, it does something for the country. You know, everybody around everybody you know is is coming here, man, and it's it's pumping blood through, literally through the whole country. Something something was planted years ago, you know, a couple of years ago, starting to sprout. This is being watered. When you got people like Big Sean, Royce, Eminem, they may not even know who Slum Village is or might not even know who Dilly is. When you got people like Jessica Caramel, like who represents Detroit more than her? Trick Trick, maybe? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like, it's these people that wear it. You know, whole families have have you know, kind of been through the flux to get to this point. So it's, a, it's an honor for me to even be in a position 
to uh to represent this place and I don't take it lightly. I don't take it I I, I take it everything everything behind me. I'm bringing it all with me everywhere I go. We shot it in five minutes, right? Like I'm like, well, let's find a place on Woodward. I didn't know Roe before this moment, you know, and 48,000 plays, you know, tons of comments that were like, this is how I feel. I mean, 48,000 plays for me is a lot on Instagram. You know, and like, I mean, it was Shinola who has a big following, but it's super easy for people just to stripe up. But that kind of thing, like just getting that instant quote of like depth, you know, you can see beautiful reels and it like doesn't have any substance respectfully, right? You know, but like that substance is in everybody, you know? Yeah, so Roe, you know, each person I feel like has a moment inside where if I'm like, hey, uh, like I literally, I'm like, you mind just standing there like and looking proud or looking, just looking at the camera. Like I don't need a smiley. I don't need like all this kind of stuff. And so Roe is on the on the side of life where, you know, he's in the spotlight. He's in, he's been behind the camera. He was in, he's in a movie. So he, he did that perfectly, right? When, when people aren't, you know, that's kind of like, that's kind of where I'm like, how do I get, how do I get the most out of that? And I mean, I, I'll, I'll try and send, I'll try and get to an image sometime of some, uh, a worker, I'm in charge of documenting Ford's train station project. Uh, um, and one of the, one of the workers there was like, can you shoot my daughter's um, graduation photos? You know, it's like, I don't really do that ever. And I've never done that. You know, I've shot like three weddings. One of them was Pamela Anderson wedding with Kid Rock. One of them was like my brother, you know, like if, but if somebody asked me, well, I'm not a wedding photographer. I'm definitely not that uh, high school photographer. Um, but it was like right after the marches downtown and I was, you know, tear gassed three times by the police. You know, I'd seen a beautiful side of the city uh, from people marching inside, protecting downtown from people from the outside. And so it was just like, I was in an amazing place where I'm like just getting a better depth of where I'm living. And so it actually seemed like the perfect time to talk to this high school senior. And she had like built at the top of her hat to say like BLM, something else, something else in her, in her, in her, her high school. And so like, you know, just having her take it off and hold it and like look up like that it became this beautiful portrait. And then the train station was purple. Like it turned into something that I would never have expected. And I, in her, like I had to get there, right? I had to get to like, okay, are you wanting to look up or down or right or left? You know, but like for the most part, 120 frames per second really helps. You know, that really slow, sh slow shutter. But you know, we're in the middle of Woodward. So I'm just like, uh, maybe I'll go back a little bit and maybe I'll tilt up. You know, and like, boom, it's done. You know, and that, that kind of stuff helps a lot, but you know, I think everybody can get there in their in, in no matter their background. You know, you just gotta, you know, it's the access into their lives which they permit you into as a filmmaker. You know, sometimes if you show up being like, "You're lucky I'm here," you know, like I've seen people do that. Uh, I noticed there's like a wall. So you know, in, in Ukraine, I was shooting shooting at this orphanage, and I was like, "I'm going to play soccer with them for two hours before I even film." even though we only have three hours to film, you know, and the, and they were afterwards, everyone's like every, they shut out every other film crew because they just didn't care. They, uh, they didn't care about the subjects. Right. And so um, in the interview environment, there's a nice little yeah. trick here that happens to be um, something uh, many people know about, but this illustrates it very well. <laughs> now I see him. Now you don't. And uh, it's just a plate um, where you film. 
Uh, obviously, this is a little bit subject to like documentary rules. Like, are you going to do this in a documentary? But it's a great way on a windy day to kind of get that microphone close and just split the scene up in half. Um, so we don't have too much of a, we don't have too much time left. Um, on a separate shoot, uh, when I was filming those native, the First Nations people, um, like it happened to be in this childhood childhood forest that I next to like just two miles away from a forest that I grew up in as a kid from San Francisco. And so like, I just asked my friend from the FPV pilot to shoot, fly through the scene. And I don't even know what this is gonna be for. Maybe it's for my documentary film that, you know, this Resurgo film, which is not really, it's not official, but like, that's what I'm naming the film. But like, you know, kind of me retracing my steps in life. Cause uh, I think that kind of like, wherever you came from matters. Um, I, was, I was on WDT the other day and it was like, take your kid to work day. And there was all these like eight year olds and they're like, what do you want to say to these eight-year-olds? And I'm like, I have a 10-year-old and a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. And I'm like, follow your dreams. You know, I'm like, it's like, but that's kind of our audience right now, right? It's like, what do you say to people? Like, what do they need to hear? And I was like, wherever you guys are in life right now matters. Like, what you care about, the world should know, you know, and follow whatever that means to you. You know, and so like, I, you know, when Our Magazine came to me to like, do a Detroit guide. And I was able to point my lenses to like my friend Bryce Detroit and a woman named Marsha Music who, whose father lost uh, his business when the 375 plastered over Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. You know, these stories that are like just so important, not only to the Detroit narrative, but to the national narrative. Like I never knew that was gonna happen like 10 years ago when I'm eating bread with my cat. Actually, that was like 15 years ago, but you know, like when I was just married and we're having kids in the city and, and we're just like living life here. And, and, you know, I didn't come up with documenting Detroit becoming a Detroiter because like, that's not my words. So that's kind of an interesting thing to me, but, um, you know, with the Resurgo film, it's just this process that I'm trying to understand this 18 years of content, this idea that there's many other lenses besides the ones we carry. And, um, you know, I have 2 million photographs, thousands of hours of footage, and uh, I'm constantly trying to figure out the narrative arcs. Um, and each film I do about the city, like this one I'm about to show, is my own search to try and figure out uh, purpose. You know, I think that's like, uh, no, purpose is too big, too big of a statement. It's more like just um, like that, it's like that unspoken thing inside of you of why you pick up a camera, why I do. So, um, Half of the shots you're about to see are found moments. Half of them are artistic, like we set this up, like a helicopter day. Um, helicopter days are very expensive. Uh, I had never had that before. It was more money than I made three years total <laughs> was in one day of shooting a helicopter. But because of that shot over when I became friends with people that were really good at what they did, you know, and they we brought in a Hollywood filmmaker and a Hollywood aerial DP and all these things. And my life went like this. And like just meeting people who are over there you know, could take whatever you need to do to the next level in a way that you never thought it could. And so like four months, three three weeks before this moment was never even an option. So this was shot in about two weeks and edited in the same time when Amazon was trying to find its second world headquarters. Like this, every image of that that was created wasn't created with that film in mind. It was like a daily look. It was a daily uh, revelation of of looking at the people in front of me and being like, you know, yes, you could be in the film, but more so like, how can I 
lift up this voice? How can I lift up this voice? And, you know, we're kind of in that middle right now. Like I'm just starting my next film with her and I have no idea what it's going to look like in some respects. I'm in a better place now to have a little bit of pre-production so that I do know a little bit more, but you know, it's due June 6th and like, I'm in the middle of this like massive hustle. Yeah. I, I don't even have music. You know, I don't know what the music is. We know what the poem is. I now kind of can be like, I want these shots, these shots. Cause with Jessica, it's like a see and say, right? It's like, sometimes you need to see exactly what she's talking about. And sometimes pretty pictures and people can just help you understand the vibe that you're trying to go for. So uh, I, we could go in a lot of different ways after that, but I kind of want to open up to questions or closing thoughts. You know, some of the 2005 work really was 100% uh, tripod. Finding that frame was very good to do. It just kind of like honing that skill. Um, in, you know, for the, for the Detroit Free Press, it was a 30 part series that we did two to three minutes each in 2005 and six. So it was kind of a little bit different for what most other people were doing online at the time. And we just kind of had to find the story as a documentarian does, but it's very much like, here's a shot, here's a shot, here's a shot. You know, like the tripod way, right? Like it's like just boom, boom, boom. And I've carried that into the gimbal world, but um, sometimes I didn't hold the shot for too long. I would cut, you know, when you shouldn't cut, you know. But for the most part, it's really just tuning and being more not arrogant, but self-confident in your approach to like filmmaking. Because in 2007, I went across all of Vietnam for the largest nonprofit group there and approaching every scene, even if it was 14 hours away, I would stress the entire time there. Like 14 hours of stress being like, what am I gonna shoot? What, what, what if I don't find anything? But like, we all see something that we see and you will only see what you see. Like, it's like kind of like backwards thinking, but I've gotten to the confidence level of like, you know, I understand the scene's gonna be good. I'm gonna be prepared for that as much as I can be prepared for. And if I see something, I'm gonna shoot it. You know, and that kind of that kind of thing has just decreased the stress in my life. And then the three kids in my life also have increased the stress in my life. So, you know, in the most beautiful way possible. Cool, well, thank you guys for coming. I really appreciate your time and feel free to hit me up anytime. Thanks for watching Broadcast to Post. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive future episodes. Follow Keycode Media on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram to receive news on additional AV, broadcast, and post-production technology content. See you next time, folks.